my experience with, with this kind of double consciousness, I grew up in Missouri and I was trying to understand what it meant. My parents are from Zimbabwe, what it meant to be like Zimbabwean and to be African and to be whatever, while also understanding and trying to learn the most effective way of navigating white supremacy, the way that I perform blackness in a way that isn't so threatening, the way that I carry myself and have conversations with white people to make myself seem the most to be to seem safe and attractive and and respectable. Um, and it's 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 some stuff that I have to do in the academy. It's this respectability politic that you even as a as a radical or whatever, sometimes find yourself playing in order to be safe, in order to 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 en- enable your your career to be as successful as possible. You know, it's and, and it's and it's this thing that hopefully you understand yourself. This is one of the first episodes of my new feminist Muslim podcast called Habibti Please. And I'm super honored to have one of my friends from the internet and my birthday twin, uh, Zoe, join me today. And we're going to talk about a few things we've been thinking about as friends together and chatting through uh, on the internet, but also in our very real lives as graduate students doing um, work. Uh, And if Zoe, if you could introduce yourself a little bit to the audience. Yeah. Um, hello, I'm Zoe Samudzi. I am a, what, I guess, fifth year PhD student at UC San Francisco, basically studying the sociology of genocide. Um, I am also an, I guess, aspiring art critic. And my interest is mostly photography. Yeah, I think that's the most important parts. <laughs> awesome. And how can people find you online if they want to follow you? Oh goodness. I am on Twitter, uh, Z-T-S-A-M-U-D-Z-I. Awesome. And um, so today I wanted to start talking about something a bit broader outside of academia, but something that I think touches academia, touches other people's workplaces and something that people have been talking about a lot after the popularity of, I would say, um, anti-racist reading lists, but also people finally, I guess, thinking about in the mainstream anti-racist education or anti-oppression trainings, uh, kind of mushrooming and books like White Fragility. Uh, You've always had good takes, in my opinion, on kind of how people like learn about racism or whiteness or anti-racism. But how how have you been seeing it since May when the uprisings have started, especially in like COVID, where we're all kind of only using Zoom uh, happen and manifest? and, And how before this have you seen them? You mean like the reading lists and the trainings? Yeah, the reading lists and the trainings and kind of the way people talk about anti-oppression trainings or anti-racist education. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so weird to like see anti-racism like trending in this way. On one hand, I want to feel excited and inspired that people are are buying and reading books like Um, I was talking to William, who's the co-author of His Black is Resistance, and we were really astounded to see the jump in sales of our book from even from 
May to June and then July. I think that we maybe sold more books in June and July than like the whole two years that our book has been out, which feels crazy. Yeah. So, you know, on one hand, it feels exciting that people are figuring out ways of of tapping in. But on the other hand, you know, when something becomes a trend, when something is kind of en vogue, um, it means that there are going to be so many more people who are going to be opportunistic, um, who are going to try to figure out ways of getting involved, so to speak, but can only imagine doing so in like exploitative ways, like those people who were making jewelry out of glass from the sh- from Charlottesville, and they were naming jewelry after like there was like the Tamir. There was the Ayana, the Trayvon, the Brianna, the Eric, which was a bolo tie, which is definitely a choice given how he was killed. I think that my favorite take on the reading lists, there is one in Boston Review by, I think, um, Bhakti Sringapur, which I thought was really, really sharp. Um, And then there's also Lauren Michelle Jackson's in Vulture, which was one, I mean, she's one of my favorite thinking, writing, whatevering people, because she's so funny and just so, so smart. But she wrote this really, 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 really great critique of the reading list and, and really critis- like makes a really sharp set of criticisms about what it means for someone to be an anti-racist writer. Like, how is Toni Morrison an anti-racist writer just because the subjects in her books happen to be Black or happen to or the setting happens to be like the antebellum South. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Lauren actually, because uh, Lauren was a guest on my other show, Muslim Arms Springa, and she's coming on after you on this show. He's great. Yeah, but I, 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 I highly suggest people look into Lauren's piece and I'll link it in the show notes. But she has this paragraph that, for, that felt especially, um, is a short one that felt just ex- especially like on the nose in terms of, kind of diagnosing what the issue is. She writes, I suppose the anti-racism reading list is exactly for that person, the person who asks for it. And yet the person who has to ask can hardly be trusted in a self-directed course of study, not if their yearning for gentle education also happens to coincide with the earliest exposure to books written by people who are not white. Anti-racism reading lists fail such a person for they are already predisposed to read black art zoologically. Whether the stories are fact or fiction is irrelevant. No one either knows or cares why certain writers express themselves in certain forms at certain times. Um, And I think that what the reading lists do by saying, if you want to learn about anti-racism, read Toni Morrison, is to maybe search for themes and ideas that she's not trying to convey and in doing so you kind of miss the the vastness of what she's trying to communicate um same with baldwin um same with you know most of these black writers who end up on these lists never mind that anti-racism seems so limited to thinking about these really shallow interactions with anti-blackness right like we're not thinking about settler colonization and we're not thinking about indigenous literature and indigenous writing or other other you know other other groups who are being marginalized and securitized and surveilled and whatever it's just this very particular fixation on and with 
black people, but then also this like weird refusal to allow black people to exist in the kind of fullness of their being. It's, it's been weird and I hate it. And I hate the fact that Robin D'Angelo makes so much money from this really truncated idea of what anti-racism is. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate you discussing, like reading Lauren's paragraph. You're a natural at this, um, at podcasting and the way that people approaching it, Toni Morrison, for example, in Baldwin, if they approach it and say, I'm reading this book because it's an anti-racist book, they're flattening what they should be taking out of it and just looking for certain parts of it, like having black subjects and black people. Absolutely. Cause it's like, if you read, you know, other th- essays about, about race that Toni Morrison is writing, she's just like, I'm writing. I have no interest in whiteness. I have no interest in kind of tailoring my ideas. So they land more easily and are palatable. Like I'm thinking about black life and black struggle and black everything and and not concerned with these gazes. And so what does it mean to train this really reductive white gaze onto, you know, Morrison and, and other genius writers that just are very clear about not wanting to be read that way and not writing that way? Yeah. And what I remember, like the quote I always think about when I think about anti-racism and thinking about how much energy I'm guilty of this, putting in energy to like just fighting people or something like that. I I think of Toni Morrison and I think about Toni Morrison specifically saying the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction and it keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you from it keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly. So you have scientists working on that fact, on the fact that it is. And and I just think about this idea of um, these anti-racist reading lists kind of serve as distraction almost when they name certain books that aren't necessarily supposed to be doing that. And it's so interesting. I remember I saw the, you know, the, the top 15 New York Times bestseller, what, what, what. And it was like white for in, in order maybe not consecutive, but kind of in order, it was like white fragility, American dirt. Oh. And then Ibrahim Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I was like, hold on. So all of the anti-racist books are making the rounds and Janine Cummings' book is still on the bestseller list. Oh. Or maybe like bestseller from the summer or from like a little bit ago or whatever. But I was just like the fact that, you know, everyone is being praised for their kind of anti-racist attention and this woman who 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 created this like incredibly ridiculous, racist, fabricated tale of like, it's a story that makes no sense. And then also is like, was pretending to be, to have inhabit this identity that she didn't. And was like pretending to have an undocumented husband that like, I think a lot of people assumed was Central American, but was actually like Irish. I was like, oh, cool. And that was because of like the intentional um, ambiguity in her writing, right? With the mistake, not mistake, but confusion around her partner's identity. It was just like my formerly undocumented partner. And I think that just the natural assumption that people made given the subject material was that her husband was Mexican or Honduran or otherwise, you know, Central American or just maybe just like Latino generally. It was weird. And, and I, you know, again, I, 
the reason that it, I think that it got the kind of prominence that it did was because of Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. And, and for people who are not that familiar with American dirt or the, and I know you've alluded a bit to it. Um, what's the best way to capture it? That it's somebody who doesn't like disingenuinely phrased their identity or framed themselves as somebody having a certain identity. And I just remember that she had a launch party where it was so disturbing. There was vases like flower vases that had barbed wire on them mm-hmm. and they're like little concrete blocks or whatever that mm-hmm. yeah it was really horrific like turning turning like the the border into an aesthetic if you can imagine yeah and people got their nails painted I don't know if you've seen that Did they? <laughs> some of her friends got their nails painted with um the, the kind of the cover of the book but then also had barbed wire <sighs> That part um, I missed. That's terrible. Border as aesthetic. Yeah, the, la- the launch of that book was done in such like a liberal kind of boss girl border as aesthetic way that I've never seen taken. I've never seen that before. And then I remember that like as an apology, she and Oprah were going to like record a session at the border. And I'm just like, no, as an apology, just like take the book off of your book club thing and say you're sorry and just keep it pushing. Like, don't try to make this, don't try to redeem this woman who lied um, and who, who wrote an incredibly offensive book, got a massive advance and, and, and inhabited like a writerly space that like someone else who had a much better story, a more authentic story, whether fiction or nonfiction could have inhabited. It was just insultingly bad on every front. And I was working at a bookstore when it came out and um, one of my coworkers like made a little sign about what was going on. And we, we gave a bunch of recommendations about fiction and nonfiction and poetry about immigration and the border that people should read instead, because yes, we have to sell it. I, well, whatever, we'll put an asterisk on that one. It's like, <laughs> yes, it's being sold. But also here are other things that are much, much, much are, you know, are, are worth your time. That's that's like refreshing to hear because I did also see it um, kind of prominently displayed in Canada in bookstores that we have here. So that's nice to hear. And I'm assuming you worked on an independent bookseller. Yeah, I was working. Shout out to Green Apple Books on the Park in San Francisco. Awesome. Can you um actually a little bit of a tangent, but can you recommend some of the books that people could pick up instead? Can we can we um, link this to the episode to the episode? Because yeah. Off the top- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just put in the show notes then. So books that Zoe recommends instead will be in the show notes. Let's do that. (laughs) Um, Just, yeah, don't buy American Dirt. Don't buy White Fragility if you're listening to this. And we hope if you're listening to this, you haven't already bought them. And as penance, you know, you should read something of quality and buy it from a Black-owned bookstore. Yes, and we we will link some. I have some links for that too that I'll put in the show notes. That's the other thing that's been wild to me is there was a black owned bookstore book maybe in, I forget exactly where, but they were, they, they wrote this message because there were obviously a lot of um, delays in people getting their books because tons and tons of people were buying the same book, which means, and I only know this from bookstore things, when you have to buy something from the warehouse, they only have a certain number of books in store. And once there are none, you have to then wait for them to get more books, which you can then order. So if everyone in, and their mom is buying white fragility or everyone and their mom is buying how to be an anti-racist, it's going to take a lot longer 
for shipments to come in. And so it's absolutely wild that people are buying these anti-racist books and then sending all of these really like just absolutely ridiculous. Can I speak to the manager emails to this bookstore complaining about the fact that the books aren't coming in quickly enough? Yeah. And then I saw the other end of it where many books came in weeks later and people weren't picking them up. Yes. And, and in, in good faith, a lot of bookstores will let you like pre-order, I think, without um, putting all of the money or without paying in full or something. You're like requesting they order. And so I saw a lot of independent booksellers and a lot of black owned bookstores also talking about how they had piles of these books that now are not being claimed or picked up. Mm-hmm. Um, so people just impulsively bought or got these places to buy these books and when they came in three weeks after, they suddenly didn't want to be anti-racist, I guess. And it's just like, you know, if push comes to shove, just get an ebook. Yeah. And then you can just get it immediately and read it whenever instead of doing the whole strange performance of, of purchasing a book that you're not going to pick up or read. Yeah. As a former bookseller, it, it is making me very, very angry. Yeah, well, it should be. And then like sending an email to be upset about it taking a while. It makes sense that it takes a while when everybody's buying it. Yeah. And it's going to take a while because it's not Amazon. And because there are if, if people if people are mailing books via media mail, we already know that UPS or USPS is having problems because it's being like systematically chopped up into bits so it can be privatized. So then there is also the issue. Like all of these are like structural problems that the store really cannot be blamed for. Ugh. Were you still working at the store during that? No. So I think I stopped working there in January. Okay. But you're, yeah. you're familiar with, uh, I, I felt really bad for independent booksellers during that time. Even, and then also there's like now and the whole kind of settling into this quote unquote new normal of like pandemic sales and shopping and stuff like that it's I just and then folks not having the same amount of business and so many businesses having to close like it's 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 pretty miserable very and and people like I guess I would say people with having certain politics and then going for the convenience of Amazon Mm -hmm. which is like can you just wait another few weeks to have your item if you do have the if you're I don't know if you're ordering a book that talks about capitalism why would you order it from Amazon? That's my thing. <laughs> like, don't you feel icky reading it? And this is one of the things I appreciate about Verso is it's like, if you order the book, you get a free ebook or something like that. Yeah, I'm a big Verso supporter. <laughs> Very big Verso supporter for that. And I think it's a good model. But um, I guess besides uh, besides the, the anti-racism, anti-racist reading list boom, and you even experiencing the, your own little boom as an author, which is so interesting to hear about, Recently, uh, there's been a push academically. So Canada, we just had scholars strike on the 9th and the 10th. Um, and there's been uh, teach-ins that were amazing. Um, Min Suk Lee was involved, Erica Violet Lee, um, uh, Desmond Cole, quite a few people. But the, there was the week before that, there were people talking about um, syllabi online and what should syllabi have and not have. And even yesterday, I saw some people talking about the first time they've seen syllabi that had authors that actually are from the group that that represents and I remember myself I hadn't read a Muslim feminist until 
my second year of grad school, somebody finally had it on a syllabus. And I've been in these classes that should have been having that. And I guess I'd, I'd want to hear from you about um, more about that and what you've encountered over your many years of education as well. And um, the way the way online discourse flattens what that actually means to actually have people who write about and do research in these communities and in their communities represented on syllabi or just like being incorporated. Yeah, I mean, we, we, I mean, the academy we know is as much as it is a site of like knowledge production, it is also a site of epistemicide, right? It is a site of the destruction of, of knowledge, even when it does decide to incorporate certain kinds of knowledge, right? Like the knowledge can only exist as the academy seeks to, to use and legitimize it. I think that it's, I, I, I don't want to fall into the trap of saying that like every, everything by black people is like good reading or good writing because it simply is not. Um, and also I will say that whenever I can have the opportunity to cite a black thinker um, talking about anti-blackness or black studies or whatever over someone who isn't black, like I will absolutely seize that opportunity. I mean, we were talking about methodologies before we we started the conversation. And I think that there's something that's really special and exciting about like feminist standpoint theory and this idea of theorizing about the world around you from a position of, a, of, of marginalization or experience or whatever that you inhabit because of a kind of authority that experience offers, right? Not to say that experience is itself wisdom or knowledge and authority, but I think it informs a really a really important way of kind of analyzing and describing and and navigating the world around you. So yeah, it's been really, I mean, obviously part of the strike is this response to state violence and this response to the the ongoing uh the protests. So it would be really weird if they weren't being responsible about who they were citing. But yes, you're right. Some of the syllabi that I was seeing were really, really exciting. And I hope that, you know, these ideas of like citing black women and, you know, having really meaningful inclusion of kind of the ideas and the, the theories of like marginalized identities without tokening, tokenizing them, which Linda Tuiwai uh, Smith talks about really brilliantly in her work this idea of like bringing Maori scholars into the academy just to say that you've brought them, but to not actually confer authority to them. Yeah, I think that that's really exciting. And I, I hope that all of the institutions that are putting out these, these statements of, of saying that Black Lives Matter and whatever um, are reflected these, I hope these statements are reflected in hiring policies. I hope these statements are reflected in, you know, really listening to students and, and faculty and, and university staff members and, and calling to have police forces removed from campuses. And um, I hope it's reflected in, you know, in, in, in the kind of scholarship that they're encouraging their students to, to produce and, 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 and the faculty members to produce as well and not stripe breaking. You know, there, there's a practice, a practice that has to follow along with, with all of these things as well. 
Yeah, and I really appreciate you bringing up uh, Linda's work. And there's also um, Sean Wilson has the book uh, Research as Ceremony. Um, and uh, I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan of Linda's work and it's influenced my methods a lot. But I, I think it's interesting. Um, Eve Tuck had a challenge, a citation practice challenge when I was first starting grad school in 2015. And it was about... Um, being mindful about how we cite people, whether it's on a syllabi or ourselves writing papers. And it asked questions like, who gets erased when people are citing in certain disciplines? Who do we recirculate? Um, and who should we stop circulating? And I keep sitting with those three questions and I, I kind of stopped doing it um, when I was younger. I don't know if you've had this experience as a grad student, but I feel like when I started, I was just so much braver and less beaten down by the discipline that I'm in. And I was just like so like bold and like I'm ready to fight and I had energy for it. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to fight and ask why I don't see, um, like you said, like people from the community aren't just allotted in to be tokens. They're actually their knowledge is valid in the way they want to. Um, they have authority. And that that's like a history of like how methods were done before, like uh, in the extractive nature of research. But I'm wondering, um, seeing people recently like get really upset at a young person who just wanted to see black queer people on a syllabus. I'm wondering if we can discuss like the importance of citation and and um, like syllabi building. Yeah, I mean, I I have maybe some feelings about how they went about doing it. Um, but I think that it's a perfectly valid question to ask why you're talking about queerness and there are no, or there are few or however many, such a limited number of, of, of Black scholars, especially when you think about how much Black queer culture has influenced the community or thinking about, you know, queerness in, in thinking about like gendered, not like gender queerness, but thinking about like, if we're, if we're talking about gender, about how black womanhood is this particular kind of quote unquote queered womanhood. Um, it's, for me, it's, it's, it's not only kind of unfathomable that there wouldn't be many, many black, you know, queer theorists, but it also is incredibly ridiculous for someone in, in defense of the absence of Black people to say, well, I don't think that only Black people need to write about Black queerness. And it's like, mm, that is correct. And also, that is not the response that you need to give someone when they are asking questions about the kind of ethical practice of, of putting together a, a set of knowledge like a set of ideas. I thought that that was like a weird dismissive response. I mean, yeah, citation is, is important and it doesn't make sense to act as though anything that we're saying is completely novel because even if we're making a novel contribution, there's an entire body of work that our work is drawing from, even if we're ultimately like rejecting it. I was just going to to respond to the the thing the, the the set of questions from Eve, who is I think is she's so lovely and just ugh. yeah, I love her too. That last question of who do we need to leave behind 
in the first chapter of my diss, I'm like talking about phenomenology and I have a footnote where I'm just like, I know that he is the guy, but I am very deliberately not citing Heidegger because this is a project about anti-colonialism. It is a project about indigeneity and Heidegger was a Nazi. And there are other people who do phenomenology, not only like indigenous African and other indigenous scholars, um, people who are not Nazis, um, like Merleau-Ponty, who talks about the body. Like there are other people who do phenomenology that I would much rather engage. And I just put that in a footnote and I kept it moving. Yeah. And it's so simple. And I, and I think um, back to like, not to talk too much about like what happens on Twitter, but that did inspire a bigger conversation about how other people in certain disciplines or graduate studies were maybe dismissive of the spirit of what that student was asking. But also that was a student with a tiny like account, like it was never supposed to blow up like that. And I think the the lack of generosity to the question at hand, which was a very valid question, the, the method, yes, like you said, it's OK. Yeah, there's some questions there, maybe. But that, I don't think when I was 20 years old, if I posted about school, I never expected anything to get that much traction and so there was like just a hyper saturation for that person people are just not being very generous while being while while ironically being like in precarious positions like for example some adjuncts or graduate students who are just like oh shitty student it's like do you remember being 20 and seeing a syllabus and not seeing yourself in it even though it's clearly a class where you should be able to see yourself in it I mean when I was 20 I don't think that I was maybe thoughtful enough to ask that question. I think the person is so thoughtful. I was like, I was impressed. I also, when I was 20, I was just like going through the motions. I mean, when I was 20, I was just getting an understanding of why, because I did political science for undergrad. Like I was by my senior year, just coming to understand why it was really messed up that I had to read Clash of Civilizations Mm. in 2011. I was just really gaining a foothold on why it was so inappropriate that in my capstone class, it was basically me and this other air train and this air train kid, the only two black people in class, we had to debate the entirety of our capstone class in, in defense of what was the argument? It was about, um, do Africans have any concept of like, or value for democracy because there have been so many corrupted leaders. So obviously it means that people are not smart enough to value democracy. And I was just like, And he just let it happen. And like at 20, I was only just getting my head around this. So for this 20 year old to to be like, hey, this citational practice, this idea of representations, this and this and this and that, like, I thought it's a it's a really important set of questions. Like, I'm, I'm glad on one hand that they felt confident enough to kind of share, to be vulnerable and to kind of share. Um, I really regret the response. Um, yeah. Yeah, I do. I do too. And we don't have to, um, keep talking about it, but I think that, I think it's so important that people have these conversations. I think I wish at 20, I was that smart. Like I was like, oh, I wish at 20, I like asked this prof why I had to like argue in anthropology about why like mm, Taliban is not what this person thinks it is. Um, but, but it's, it's say that because my capstone was about Somalia and I was told that I was apologizing for terrorism when I said, hey, I think that this whole conversation about Somali piracy is completely, un- is is ridiculous because if countries weren't dumping 
in the Gulf of Aden and like the Somali coast, like it probably would not have been a thing. And he was like, this is, this, this feels like you're making excuses for them. And I was like, mm, I had a similar response and it was, um, the prof just like let like two white women just like yell at me basically for, for being like, for saying that I was uh, empathizing with bad Taliban men who hurt women. And I was like, I'm a Muslim woman. Like, I know what I'm saying. <laughs> like I was like, um, please let me speak. But yeah, I think at 20, this was really brave. And I think, uh, I don't know if you, um, also desire maybe becoming a prof, but I know you're definitely an educator, even through the internet, but as educators, I just would hope we're more generous in the future. Um, when things blow up, that that tweet should have gotten like 40 engagements, in my opinion. I used to tweet stuff about my profs all the time. <laughs> yeah, I I would love to teach. I hope to teach. And I hope that I have. I mean, if it's a good faith question, because we know the difference between good and bad faith questions. Yeah. I hope to 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 have the humility to like really sit with whatever real error that I've made that a student has pointed out. And I yeah. think that every person who considers themselves to be a responsible educator, I hope that they would do the same. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that and sharing about when you were younger. It was so interesting to hear. We, we kind of touched a little bit on this with um, the American book controversy. And and I believe sometimes um a lack of certain admissions becomes lying, whether it's about identity or something. But um, I want to talk to you also a bit today about this kind of this week of finding out about these about a few people in certain fields who um, Jessica Krug and somebody else uh, and finding out that they're actually like lying or posturing about their identities. And that that has been instrumental in the way that they posture themselves as academics. Um, I don't know which entry point you want to enter the conversation from, but I guess that's like even a question. Like, how do how do people even enter this conversation? Like, I've been trying to be very thoughtful and not very public about it, but um, it's interesting how a lot of these people enter by first claiming they're North African, and and I see a tr I see a trend in my so I like sometimes do stuff with North African and Mediterranean studies um, because I'm Amazigh, but um, but. I've never shifted to that. I grew up saying that and I've, it's been in my work since I was like in university, but uh, there is a trend for people to start saying they're North African and I've seen it myself. So to see it blow up to me was shocking, but also this didn't hurt me that much as much as it's hurt black people this week. And I, I want to talk to you a bit about this. I don't even know. I also don't know where to start. I mean, I think like earlier yesterday, like yesterday or something I tweeted, like, I wish everyone pretending to be black could just like disclose all at the same time. So we could just be mad all at once instead of like having to be mad for the next however many years in finding out all of these people have been lying. It's the thing for me is the real anti-blackness of it. There's a few things. One, there's the like irony about maybe their work being more authentic if they're black, but it's like no white person really has had the quality of their work called into question because they were working or because they were writing about non-white communities as white people. Like that's not a thing that happens. In fact, like that's what the Academy is, right? It's white people writing yeah. about non-whiteness. <laughs> so the idea of like needing to be black to do the work is just baffling to me. Well, if you look at Africana studies, like the, the people who are tenured in Africana studies. Listen, <laughs> and then the second part to me feels messy 
even messier than just the idea of pretending to be black or North African or whatever. It's that there seems to be this idea that like anything goes as a non-white person, like that you can step into non-whiteness and like feel freer, whether it's like you being sexier, whether it's you having some level of intellectual freedom, but it's like this idea of inhabiting non-whiteness and having more agency in your work. And also maybe this idea of trying to take advantage of like affirmative action admits or hires because you're afraid that your work would not stand up to the quality that whiteness would expect from a white person. So it's it's this weird idea that you would have more success as a non-white person than as a white person. And also that you could deliver a lower caliber of work because you're not white. I think like those are the two operative things playing out that feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. And I, and I, um, definitely the one part, a lot of what you said resonates, but one thing that you've mentioned is that you, you don't have to be, um, have the identity you possess to do research with people. Um, but you don't have to, it doesn't matter if you're white in these fields. And I think the internet, um, moves very differently than the way the academy moves because every Africana studies department I've looked at has multiple white people. Or depending on the institution, it is majority white. Yeah, yeah, for the longest time too. Um, and, and I don't know if you've sat on hiring committees, but from what I can say from the two I've sat on for tenure track positions, um, there was a quote unquote call for somebody who either does, um, has indigenous background, heritage, they worded it as, or African heritage, that doesn't mean the people who were shortlisted had those things. We shortlisted white people as well. And the fights or conversations that went on in the background um, from people who were also tenured is is that it doesn't matter, actually, even if the posting said that. So it's really bizarre to me for people to kind of step into a non-white identity, like you said. I just don't have an explanation for it. It's yeah. weird. And... And it's always like an entrance into this identity through like, not just like marginalization, obviously, but like through like real experiences of, of, of violence and trauma as though it is trauma that defines blackness or other, or indigeneity or non-whiteness. Like, like it is in this way because of transatlantic slavery and because of settler colonization and whatever, but to to have this this identity that revolves around trauma you know is to say that that's all these identities are and ever can be um and it was wild when someone showed um i think images of of Jessica's parents um and her whole story was that like her mom was like an addict and a sex worker and her dad was an abuser and it's just like from what I saw online, it's like they just seemed like kind of average. I can't speak to the interpersonal relationships, but they just seemed like kind of just like two white Jewish people. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've gathered too. And same with um, somebody from another person from University of Wisconsin that I think there's going to be a few of these people who come up during this month when people are feeling 
comfortable to talk about it, but that person also people found pictures of them before, I guess they started using bronzer and styling their hair in a certain way. And their story of their, I guess, family story that they told people was also one rooted in violence. Whereas like everybody I know that is actually committed to like doing this work and talks about their identities, at least in graduate school is very into this concept of like also suspending damage and also talking about the merits or the good parts of our communities and why we're not broken or damaged people. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's of course not to pretend yeah. that violence doesn't exist and not to pretend that trauma doesn't exist because that would also be disingenuous. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it, it, I think the thing that was the the worst about Jessica Krug was like, the number, so we were mutuals on Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, in whenever the letter got sent to me, it got sent to me by multiple people on the same morning. And I was like, my God, I, I need to lie down. But it was so interesting because I was just reflecting on the people who were kind of most prominently positioned as, as, as like her support system. Um, and the people, most of the mutuals that we had, I think were like black, queer black men, um, which felt really gross, you know, in the way that, you know, she was instrumentalizing them. And then obviously not to take away their agency. Um, and then also it was so interesting to see how deeply antagonistic she was to Black and Latina and obviously Afro-Latina women um, in the stories that were being shared about when she was on fellowships with folks or when, you know, there was a Black woman who confronted her and was just like, you understand that you are white passing. And she was just so defensive and it was just the most ridiculous conversation. And it's, you know, it's, it's really telling to me that, you know, she she tried to kind of cultivate this really intense proximity with queer black men and was so deeply antagonistic towards black women, which, which feels like white woman 101. And at the same time, you know, so many people kept being like, it's so obvious she was white and da, 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 da. And it's like, well, I know people who are black, who are like actually Latinx or whatever that like are that, color that like look like that and so then the really difficult question for me that's also very uncomfortable is it's like without getting into the really ugly race science of like demanding to see people's family pictures and like making all of these requests of of people to like prove their identities like how how do we like remain generous and open while also kind of safeguarding ourselves and 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 community members because you know, these folks like get really good at, at their infiltration to the point where they have like people who are vouching for them, like black folks who are vouching for them to other black folks. And, and I think that, you know, a personal flaw of mine is I'm just like really trusting and I tend to take people at their word and people lie, not a revelation, but this is a kind of lie that I have never experienced before despite knowing that it's a, it's a possibility. And I personally have no idea what to do. Yeah. And that, that, that was something that you and I talked about before recording about how, um, I've told you for the last few days, there's people that I know who I believe are doing this, but every time I've tried to bring it up, 
um, it just gets shut down. I'm kind of reminded about me. I'm not even like done a PhD and like, um, this network is small and like, do I really want to try to bring that up or, or people vouch for them? But to be, in, to be honest, the people I know who vouch for them also are not women, mm. which I think you've just noted something that I didn't think about that deeply before about white women 101 and how they operate, um, and navigate space. And I'm thinking of Elizabeth Warren and how she got away with it until she was like 68, which is obscene. Um, and the violence of like a subtler narrative like that. But, um, yeah, I, I think, do you, have you ever, like, you've never seen this at a conference or like listened to somebody's research and been like, mm, this doesn't sound right. I just have, I've, I haven't gone to that many conferences. I've been to, I went to an African studies conference in 2015. I went to ASA last year. That literally might be it. You're, you're also like, um, like I, we were talking about how I'm in Toronto and, um, you're in, you were in San Francisco, right? So it could be where like you, I'm, I'm trying to be generous. So in Toronto, like we obviously accept everybody who like self-identifies because we're not going to ask for people. We're not going to get into race science and blood quantum. That's disgusting. Um, and I'm a mixed race person. So like, I, I really try to avoid that. in in certain disciplines, um, I've been called like half packy and stuff like that by people in the field, which is super interesting. And I'm like, okay, sure. Because white people can be in this field, but, um, but, uh, it's it, what I find weird. And I'd want your thoughts on this is yeah. What is, what is the way to still be generous, but like to still safeguard you think, I know, I know we don't have to have a perfect answer right now, but it's kind of scary. I just, I don't know where to start, honestly. And I am, I am, I'm reading all of the commentaries that people are making about how people are moving. So I can maybe pay attention to patterns in the future, but I, 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 I don't know what to, I on I honestly I don't know. I would hope that because I was talking to a friend about about Jessica and I was like, can you believe this? This is wild. And the friend was like, actually, yeah, people have been gossiping about this for years, including senior academics. And so it's like, okay, well, the reason that she ended up, you know, making this confession is because there were junior academics who were going to air her out. Um, but what about the people who were established who had their own suspicions. Like, why is it that it's the people who have the, the, the most to lose that are responsible for this kind of work? Maybe it has to do with like an investment in a community that like people who have tenure are maybe less invested because they are, they're comfortable on their own. I don't know. Yeah. And, and you had, you had a tweet the first day about Elizabeth Warren, but if you could expand on it, it was, it was really poignant. Um, the observation you made about the way people were discussing Jessica Krug versus the way people discussed Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. I mean, they're not the same just mm -hmm. to put that on the outside. Yeah. It is absolutely not identical to pretend to be indigenous versus pretending to be black, like materially, ontologically, whatever. It's not the same thing. What I was curious about was white people who were calling out Jessica Krug for what she did, but also supported Elizabeth Warren. I was really interested in the justifications that they made that made one just absolutely deplorable and the other one, if not justifiable, but acceptable. Because to me, what Elizabeth Warren did 
on a national scale, you know, we can, we can get into the debates about whether or not her pretending to be indigenous, like actually got, brought her to Harvard as a diversity hire, like whatever, there's an argument about that. What was really incredibly violent for me was that on a national stage, in order to respond to Trump's anti-indigenous racism, she took this genetic ancestry test Mm -hmm. that indigenous people have continued to insist is not the, the, the way that people make assertion, like legitimate assertions of indigenous identity. She took this test. She saw like a very small percentage of indigenous heritage or ancestry or whatever the language is for those. And like, that was used to like bolster a claim despite the fact that like multiple nations. So if at this point we're still pretending that she had no idea after that, Multiple nations were like, hey, especially the Cherokee Nation, were like, hey, here is why what you have done is bad. Here's why what you have done is basically a reinforcement of like settler logics around indigenous identity. Um, it's a reinforcement of these like shitty mythologies that like all white and southern Midwestern whatever people have about having an indigenous ancestor, however many generations back. Here's what how what you have done has like legitimized the idea of blood quantum and all of this. And she like never apologized for it or else the apologies were like really weak and she never took responsibility for what she did. I think that for me is the worst part. Yeah. And she opened she opened a vacuum. Um, She opened this like wide space for people on the left, quote unquote, and the right to make very like anti-indigenous, like anti-indigenous jokes on the internet, anti-indigenous jokes on air. Um, She opened that space. And it's just like, we're talking about anti-racism, right? And we're like having various levels of conversations around the function of the police and whatever. And how are we, obviously, you know, we are all like dug in real deep in settler colonialism, right? We're all living on on stolen land. What does it mean to like decolonize whatever the fact that we're living on stolen land, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just like, what does it mean that our concept of anti-racism does not include settler colonization, like does not include the relationship of replacement between, you know, transatlantic slavery and indigenous genocide because the reason black people were brought to this country was because indigenous people were not a viable workforce. We're not an enslavable. And so they were just simply disposed of. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Patrick Wolf has this analogy of like indigenous land in the South was, 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 was cleared in order to make way for, 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 for cotton um, and for the plantation economy. And it's just like how, are we not thinking about these things together? Like if we're incensed about police, like what do you think the function of the police is if not to to protect enclosed property, like stolen indigenous land? I never got a good answer. There were some people who were honest enough to be like, it made me uncomfortable, but I compartmentalized it, whatever. But like most people were like, you're just repeating right-wing talking points Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, or just like not really engaging with the question. I saw that in in your responses. Actually, one kind of really bothered me where the person also, um, there was this move that I I want to discuss with you a bit because I've heard you speak about this on Rev Left Radio a bit, I think, 
but there was a move for Elizabeth Warren. It was in your mentions. It was during the whole election campaign. So I do I do some stuff uh, where the rumors about Elizabeth Warren, I've heard them before they became big news. But the first articles about it started in around 2012. Um, she wouldn't meet with the Cherokee Cherokee women from Cherokee Nation. Um, she wouldn't meet with them. And people just started to get suspicious about it. Um, in Indigenous studies, some people talked about it. And her when she moved to Harvard, her sudden identification. However, she never she never like significantly mentored people of color, which is like, I think, any people of color in higher ed who are actually serious or actually committed or have relations with their community end up inevitably mentoring other younger people. I'm sure you do, Zoe. I do a bit. It just happens. And like it happens, especially to tenured profs. And she never had that like relationship with students. But one thing that was kind of jarring that I saw in your mentions is this whole idea of like she's she's so old and people just kept saying um they actually believe that she believed the family stories and this this innocence of white women mm. um that perpetually exists whether it's in in academia in the real world and what role that plays in these stories i mean it's just like even if it's family lore like there are stories that my parents have or my mom has told me about people that i'm related to or whatever but like mm. I think one of them isn't all the way verifiable. And so it's one that I have never talked about because there is no reason for me to make claims that I cannot about my family or about my heritage or whatever that I can't verify. And I'm just, I'm especially not going to, I'm just, (laughs) I, I just, I, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Do you see a trend or have you witnessed like it, it kind of like, like white women, in academia or or like even like non non-black women i would say like non-indigenous non-black women like myself um and some people i know can perpetuate or like grapple grapple on grapple on or tack themselves onto any kind of identity and like um if they ever get called out they're able to be innocent and they're kind of like the the neutral um in certain research or like certain disciplines women and gender studies i see it sometimes critical race i would say theory and extended studies um and kind of this idea of innocence and even like the big example that I see sometimes is um yeah South Asians who are from whose families lived for a generation or two in Uganda or Kenya suddenly um trying to take up uh take up African studies or Africana studies but say they are African and it's like you are but also you're not black yeah and the intentional um the intentional ambiguity. Yeah, like you you need to kind of like resolve the the tensions and the in identities and it's just like I think a lot about Indians in apartheid South Africa and you know when everyone is out here talking about, you know, Gandhian Satyagraha like the reason that that became a thing was because he was helping to lead protests against the fact that like Indian people in South Africa were classified so close to black natives. And even outside of whiteness, like there is still kind of racial hierarchies. And I mean, I've seen, what I've seen definitely is, um, you know, like white people married to black folks or non-black people married to black people. And when they get called out for anti-blackness, they're just like, well, my husband or my children or my family. Um, I've definitely seen people use the proximity um, as a way of avoiding or evading accountability. Um, 
I think I see that like pretty frequently. Yeah. And I, I see that also as a, I see that and I see that as a justification for sometimes um, voyeuristic research that they conduct or like essays that they write or books that they write. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that as well, but I've seen, um, maybe I read too much. Maybe I should diversify what I'm reading in women's studies, but often when I look into the person, I'm like, oh, this is how this happened. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about like what I was writing and what I was working on before I kind of moved into what I do now. And I mean, I'm still really interested in it. Um, I was working at the center of excellence for transgender health at UCSF before I started graduate school. And you know, I'm really interested, obviously, in trans health. I'm really interested in like gendered self-determination and all of these things. And, you know, when I was initially thinking about doing doctoral research about trans health, I was just trying to think about like what what makes sense for me as a cis person to to do work about trans health, about trans people, about trans identity. That is not me attempting to kind of theorize transness. And so what I settled on and what what felt really actually responsible and necessary was to actually do a lot of really reflexive work about what it means to be a cis researcher doing transgender health work and you know for my um for a qualitative research project that I did I was interviewing trans people who worked in trans health and was kind of thinking asking questions about like epistemic authority I was asking questions about how seriously they felt that they were taken, asking questions about what it meant for them to navigate these hostile professional spaces as someone who has navigated those spaces as someone who is receiving services and receiving care and what it means to, you know, just questions about their experiences and their relationships to structures of, 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 of power. And, and that to me felt important because it, meant that I was like serving as a middleman between, you know, health providers and therapists and whatever, who have been doing this work for ages, who are experts and communicating the experiences that they had to, 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 to structures and systems of power, um, as opposed to kind of spending all my time thinking about whether or not, you know, to theorizing about like the, the specificities of like, whether, transness is something you're born with or something you're socialized into or you grow into or whatever, like that is not important to me. Um, and it's also not my place to do that as someone who is not, who is not affected by it. And in fact, like benefits from cisnormativity and it's, it's just like, and then there's also the thing in the, in that field where it's like, there are people who are kind of performing trans identity in a way, but like are not trans, which again is a really messy road to start going down because then you're starting to call into questions people people's gender. Um, but it's it's like, a, it's a thing that people in all of these feel, fields feel compelled to perform for some reason. Maybe because they're, they have like an extra edgy commentary that they wouldn't be able to get away with if not for their own sharing the identity I don't know yeah and I like with with Krug and um other people this week and I see I think I think there is something in there where they they sometimes maybe don't explicitly say but sometimes they have like I am 
a black woman or I am a North African woman. And that's the entry point. And then the story shifts. And somehow, like you said, like somehow senior scholars don't call it out. And it's a little bit weird because they probably have the most intimate experiences with their colleague. But or it's, it's strange that the people with the most to lose have to call it out. And what's the investment? But online, there's the person this week from UW where we see that I've interacted with them a few times and like they used to use the kind of ambiguous lack of admissions. And there's a point where a lack of admissions about your identity is is lying because you're letting people imply things. But they would use it to like to punch down on other white people, which is interesting because the generation of academics before us, um, a lot of them in these fields are white. They didn't need to fake being an identity, a certain identity. Right. Also, you don't have to not be white to dunk on white people. Yeah, exactly. But then I, I guess people get a thrill out of calling other people white people. So they don't want to be white people calling people white people. I don't know. It's it's like, weird. Congratulations. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's bizarre. It's like, can you can you and also it calls into question um do people actually believe their research? You you kind of touched on this a little bit before, but do people believe their research is not strong enough to hold its own, on its own? Mm-hmm. And why? I don't know if you want to talk a bit about this, but I'd be so interested to hear your your take on standpoint theory. I think that like what maybe there's like a misreading of standpoint theory, like standpoint theory isn't saying that the only people who can theorize about a phenomenon or experience or an identity or whatever are the people from that group. What it says is that there is an epistemic authority, um, a particular claim to knowledge that comes from being able to, 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 to think about power from your position of oppression. Again, it is not to say that experience is in itself wisdom because I know people who have experienced anti-blackness and when they start talking, I'm just like, what in the hell are you talking about? But it is to say that that experience like coupled with like rigorous analysis and, and, and writing and reading and whatever, like is a really powerful, um, is a really powerful combination. And that's why like what the Kumbahi River Collective gave us in the statement that they, that they, um, that they made about black feminism and about identity politics, like is so incredibly powerful because they're obviously well-studied and well-read and they're communists and they're coming at this from a materialist position. And they're like, and the reason we're doing this is because we're black women and we're sick of this shit. We're thick. We're sick of patriarchy from black men. We're sick of this like disingenuous sisterhood from black, uh, from white women. Like we're sick of all of these different, um, strands of oppression that we have to navigate simultaneously as a result of our identities. And that to me is like one of the most, to me, valuable pieces of of theory, of political writing, whatever. I mean, yeah, I I don't think that they're saying like, you cannot do this writing if you are white. Mm -hmm. Like that's not what anybody is saying. That is what I am sometimes saying, but it's (laughs) more of a personal kind of personal preference and, and frustration than it is like a fully thought out, you know, political position. Yeah. And I, I, I'd want to, I want to ask you um, a few more things before we wind down, but um, Combahee River, like you said, it's, it's just such a influential piece of writing um, and so powerful and thoughtful from a material position. But 
um, the the use and function of the terminology of identity politics has mutated, especially on the internet. But even in in organizing circles I'm in lately, some people who don't have that knowledge or maybe just dismiss it, just throw around identity politics a lot to shut down conversations. Mm. Um, and and how like like yeah, I, I don't want to ask the leading question, but um, yeah, how do you how do you think of this shift and how people throw around identity politics and and do you challenge it or how do you challenge it? And I know you're so thoughtful thinking about like not having warm body representation and having real representation or real material analysis and having yeah, having an actual thoughtful conversation instead of just shutting things down. So I think that like when I think about the way that identity politics has become a thing in this derisive way. I think also a lot about what happened with the idea of political correctness because political correctness originally, or at least like in the early and, and like mid 20th century was used to describe political orthodoxy. It was used to describe like, like a really particular adherence to a party line, a political line, a theoretical line, whatever. And then um, it became used, it was like adopted as this idea on the left and it was, it was kind of used as this like satirical thing about kind of political orthodoxy and like one's value sets. And then it became, it was adopted as like a right wing, you know, lament, lamentation of like free speech being curtailed because of all of these like rabid liberals like not wanting you to say the n-word as a joke or like not wanting mm -hmm. you to make jokes about refugees or not wanting you to like pro you know provocatively illustrate the prophet muhammad knowing that it's like insulting to a lot of people yeah so i think about identity politics similarly i don't really know the trajectory of the term quite as well between like the kambahi river collective statement and now but I, what I do know and what I'm, what I'm very sure of in my observations at least is that it has become a way of articulating anti-Blackness without ever really having to say that you're talking about Black people because mm -hmm. it, it, feels, it feels a lot like it's often kind of this derision of like politics of representation and obviously I think the people who are the loudest or at least the most amplified in calls for representation um and particular kind of affirmative action hiring practices whatever whatever are black people and yeah I think that it's often when I see it it is like functioning as a particular kind of dog whistle that's all I have to say about that <laughs> No, I appreciate it. This that was I I appreciate it because um yeah, I I think people I've seen I was like less online for a few months and it was really healthy and good. Um I should do that again, but yeah, I've been seeing again this this like since I've been back on the internet, but also interacting with people again cuz school's starting. I just see people shutting down conversations with it. And I think you're right. It's a dog whistle right now. Um I, I see people just throw it down to shut down a conversation instead of addressing addressing anything in a real way. It's like be be explicit. Yeah, yeah. Name okay. Like, so if everything's problematic, it it reminds me of the word problematic. So if everything's problematic, is anything actually problematic? Is what I used to say. 
you know, and it's and it's like there are a lot of actually things about representation discourse that I actually hate. Mm. I think that it's like super individualistic sometimes. I think that there are no victories of like, for example, you know, a woman running the Department of Homeland Security. There is nothing really <laughs> exciting to me about yeah. presidents like you know, black person helming empire. Um, but it's like I'm I'm not going to to just lazily throw around identity politics because identity politics are also incredibly important to me as like a leftist black woman. Yeah. And I think um, bringing in the Combahee River, I've been using that with some people sometimes when I'm like, can, or I just say, can you like name what's actually bothering you about this statement and not just say this is identity politics. I'm not going to engage. Mm-hmm. Like, can you name things and operationalize them? Because if you can't, it is a dog whistle. But yeah, thank you so much. I, I have one last thing I've been wanting to ask you about for a while, but I keep forgetting and it's a little bit off topic but you mentioned you're an aspiring art critic and I do not have the art brain you have and I saw recently a bit of a controversy that the Whitney um, Museum tried to do a mutual aid project and I'd love to get your take on that before we wrap up. So basically what happened oh it was ugly. (laughs) It looked ugly as an outsider What happened was that, so all of, it's been really interesting. So all of these different um, fundraising initiatives, you know, artists getting together and like selling prints or I see black selling prints, just loads of people selling prints to raise funds for black organizations or um, coronavirus relief stuff. And I've actually bought a ton of stuff from these things because it's just like, I'm not in the Bay anymore. So it's just like, let me just do things that I can do to help. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was that one of the curators at the Whitney was accessing these fundraisers and like buying work and then positioning it as like a formal acquisition to like put into a curated show. But the artists whose work was acquired were not being paid for it. And they're not being paid what they would normally ever get for exhibitioning at the Whitney, correct? Right. And the thing that was really awful, it's like, obviously there were lots of, of, of like black art, like black artists. And the thing that was awful is just like so many of these people would really love to have their work in an institution like that. And not only was their work like purchased through something that was supposed to be this like mutual aid fundraising, whatever project, but you know, a few artists like shared the emails that they received from this curator and they were absolutely ridiculous. It was like, thank you so much for this and this and that. And was like asking for information from them. And none of it was like, do you consent? Ah, to be displayed in this museum. Yeah, it was it was just this idea that their work was accessible through these fundraisers was permission for work to be purchased and displayed. And and it's and it's like it really sucks that you know, someone would take advantage of an ish, of an initiative like this or, or, or of fundraisers like this. It really sucks that like so many of these non-white artists whose work, whatever deserves to be in a museum means, you know, ought to be up in, 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 in museums. We're just completely like exploited. It, it sucks that like the apology was so disgusting. And it also sucks that like you know, the Whitney of all museums, like all art museums are like suspect in some way because of the way that the art world and the art market works. But it's like the Whitney was just under fire because one of its board members was making was making weapons that are being used 
by the police on the streets here and in Palestine and in other things or in other in in other like repressive you know situations around the world and you know because he he would he ran this country called um what safari land and was making tear gas oh my god as a as a as somebody on the board of this museum yes like i don't know how much you know about the whitney but like is are the curators all white no <laughs> Just, um one of them who whose work who i really really i really really like the work that she does is is a black woman but it's like she was not a part of this particular really horrible thing that was done with these um these other artists as far as I know um but yeah it was really awful like it was bad bad and um did I think from what I observed uh they had to shut it down within within the day because of the online flash they shut it down because like I'm really grateful that like people were not obviously these people are too smart to do stuff like this, but we're just not like bowled over by this idea that a museum was paying attention to them. And so they need to bend over backwards to accommodate. Like I'm really glad. And it was really empowering to see people just like absolutely refuse the terms of engagement with their work, especially when it came to like compensation. And I'm glad that people like shared the emails that they received. It was obviously an identical email that was sent to everyone. Um, And it was just, it was gross. It was really awful. Yeah, and I guess um, purchasing through a mutual aid art fundraiser, I don't know what the prices are like, but I'm going to assume the prices are like sliding scale and relatively low. It's like 100, 150, maybe 300 if it's like a fancy piece, but it's like 50 bucks or 150 bucks or whatever. And obviously the profits that are raised from the fundraiser do not go to the artist. Yeah, and I guess... um, for for a curator you're usually given a budget right and so i'm sure they were significantly under budget process you have to go through there i'm pretty sure there's like every museum has like an acquisitions department and you have to go through the whole process of acquisitions using this department or at least there's some kind of institutional whatever um and not just someone buying art at online fundraisers yeah and then there's like the process of um like honoring the person who the artist and and having their name and like a bio about them and all of that gets done. And I I wonder how the creator even imagined like being asked to like write by like to submit bios. It's just like, I don't know, like poverty art in a way, like creating like, I don't know, art from people trying to help other people and doing it in this way. That's disgusting. And I think it's also this, this, this attempt to, to like have a finger on the pulse and to put to, 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 to curate a show that is like reflective, um, a ref- that is like reflective of the moment. Um, but like, that's not it. Like you could just give artists a, a budget to like make some quarantine art or whatever, or like properly purchase art that was created during quarantine and not this like really awful exploitative thing that was done yeah and I guess um what was the apology like from them I don't even remember but it was you know how non-apologies go (laughs) yeah 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 like the same kind of formulaic thing of like our probably like our intention was blah 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 we apologize to anyone who was hurt or offended blah 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 and I don't mean to be dismissive about like the harm but it's just like we see so many of these like terrible apologies that I just like can't even keep them straight anymore 
like the people who made the jewelry out of the Charlottesville glass were just like, we're sorry for and to anyone we harmed or offended. We're we're looking to activists to like do better. We wanted to get involved. Da, 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 da. And I'm just like, it's so wild to me that all of the 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 jewelry that was made it was the names of murdered black people, and you cannot even bring yourself to apologize. You can't even like mention exactly what you did and why it was offensive. I saw that uh... giving money to of to like the NAACP. Like you couldn't commit to giving your money and profits raised to a black organization. I was about to ask about that. Are they now after the apology going to give the money or no? They're saying they're going to figure it out. Oh my God. You couldn't even say, we understand that this might've been offensive to the black community. Like they couldn't even, it was just the, 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 the lack of unspecificity. There was a place in Texas doing charcuterie boards named after people who were killed. What? Yeah, I, I'll send it to you when we stop. But um, yeah, I'll send it to you. And they were giving $2 from each board sold. I don't know how it's going to blow up. $2 from each board sold. I'm going to find get my friend to send it to me again. But um, yeah, $2 from each board sold to um, an organization. And these these were expensive charcuterie boards. $2, not even like 20%. Oh, no, something like $2. And it was like, yeah, there was like, literally there, they were named after people murdered. Um, but I, I saw the jewelry and I thought that's what I thought of right away. It was like, not this again. And what does that mean? But um, think like, again, a non-apology, but thinking about non-apologies, I guess to close, I like to end on a fun thing, but I would want to end on, I would want to ask you one more question about apologies for people like Jessica Krug and others. Like, what do you, what do you think? Um, and I know you're not the authority on this and, but what would you like, like to see as like a way to repair harm done from people who take on and cause so much violence by faking an identity in academia? I mean, it's like, first of all, if you're going to make an apology statement, your apology statement should include the fact that you are resigning your post immediately. And then I saw something, I think on Twitter, maybe today or yesterday, where they were like, they also need to like, go back and and look at the, um, what is it like, look at the history of things that this person has reviewed and looked for a pattern of antagonism towards people of particular identities, if that's something that exists. Like people have shown all of these ways that she was particularly antagonistic towards black and Latina and Afro-Latina women. Um, and and to, to not, for them to not only resign, but for institutions to like really make an attempt to, if there is demonstrable harm that they had committed, apart from lying, to, to try to correct that um, at an institutional level. I think that that is the bare minimum. Yeah. And as a researcher, I was thinking about um, who's going to go back through all of her research and how she interacted with participants, how she conducted it. Like, what do we do with her book? Like, are the anecdotes that are told in her book real? Yeah. And she just had a big article that just came out and I, I was reading it and I was I was curious about that, too, because um like myself, when I interview people that have shared identities with me, I do say I am Moroccan, too, or I am Muslim, too, or they know that when they're interviewing with me. And there's a different type of comfort and the answers I get are going to be very different than somebody else. And I, I wonder, how do you how do you take up work when the interviewees all believe that that person had a different identity? And what did they share with you that they would not have shared otherwise? And how 
And how, and it's like there, you know, the institutional, institutional review boards and like these ethics committees and whatever, when they are approving um, like research with human subjects or whatever, mm-hmm. there are parts of the thing where you have to declare if you're being deceptive. Yeah. For research ethics. Yeah. And there, yeah. And, and there are, there are ways that you can be deceptive, like within the bounds of, of ethical guidelines but if you are pretending to be an identity that you're not and you are, you know, establishing rapport with people using a fake identity, like your research, your work has to be called into question. Yeah. And what bedrocks your work is your fake identity for these people. Mm-hmm. When I've done work with uh, communities I'm not from, they know I don't share an identity with them besides perhaps being a woman. Completely. I mean, when I was asking questions to these to these um, trans healthcare providers, like I made it very clear up front that like I am a cis person, and like this is work that I'm interested in because I am interested in talking about cis normativity. It's and and when I was doing research for my master's, I was working with like sex workers, and I like upfronted I was like I am going to the school, which is like a school that might make you feel a type of way, which is fair because I feel a type of way about that school. And, um, I am, you know, born and raised in America, in the United States. My family is from Zimbabwe. This is the work that I'm interested in doing, whatever. And I think that they were wary of me when they met me and we hit it off. And like, they gave me access to things that I would never have thought to ask about because it was not my business to know. Um, and like, what did she get access to that was not her, bu- quote unquote, her business to know? Exactly. That's that's what I keep. I, yeah, I've been thinking about that. And I, I hope I hope and I do believe that people will start to have these conversations about um, when you research and it's deceitful, like what what should people do with her body of work? Because it is I did do a Google Scholar search and I looked at the numbers. It's cited by people. She was tenure track. She's been influencing young people for a while and I guess, yeah, what it's just a big lingering question about what happens. And, and I saw the other apology from the other person and I the lack of accountability was just so wild to me. But also that person did resign from their teaching assistant position um, and leadership position. But will these people enter back into academia is my question. And then what is the job for holding them accountable if they do? Mm-hmm. And, and that's like not only a question to you, that's a question for everyone. I mean, I don't have power, so I'm not about to, yeah. but it's like, it's yeah. Like, can they be trusted to mentor, to, to, to write honestly, to, and it's not to say that she's not a good historian, um, mm. but you know, for someone to, to, to inhabit a position and to access, I mean, she got a grant for like first gen minority scholars or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that so for people to you know, make their way up the kind of career ladder using these false identities. Like what, what can, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And, and what, like, what is the actual way to repair harm, but how, how do people engage with their work now is the big question left for the future, but we don't have to answer those things today, obviously, but I think it's something that's going to be interesting to watch because the the work is good. Like the work, some of the work is good. I'm not going to say all of it. I don't know it all, but I did read one article where I did the newest article where I did think it was okay. I thought it was good if I didn't know what I knew. Yeah. And thank you for giving me so much of your time. If you're cool with wrapping up with something fun, is that okay? 
or something more lighthearted? Let's do it. Okay, Zoe, you've been writing your dissertation. What are the five, top five songs you've been listening to on repeat while you write? So first of all, thank goodness for Spotify, because I can just go to my on repeat and, <laughs> and check. Um, okay, so um, there's a song by John Grant called Outer Space, which I love. Um, I forget where I first heard it, but I've heard, I've been listening to that one a lot. Um, there's a song called Thunder Island by Jay Ferguson, which is like almost yacht rockish, whatever stuff from the seventies, which whatever, it's great. Um, let's see what else is on here. That's not to remember. Um, Tame Impala's newest album. I've been listening to Borderline a lot. Um, that's what that's three as of late also i've been listening to chloe and hallie's ungodly hour and the one i've the song i've listened to the most is forgive me which is just amazing and then my last one something about you by level 42 um it's just like kind of classic 80s um yeah those are i think those are the ones i've listened to the most over the past few months Thank you. Amazing. And um, for one last time, can people, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Z-T-S-A-M-U-D-Z-I. Amazing. Thank you so much. And thank you for like taking me up on this so last minute. I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah. So that's it. That's it for this episode, guys. These episodes take a small team. Many episodes are hosted by Nashalina Khan solo, political episodes co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande, art and music by Post America, editing and music by Johnny Zapras, production assistance by Raymond Kanano. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibdi Please and find us on Twitter at Habibdi Please with a B 